Hello, everybody, and welcome to Untether.tv. I'm your host and founder, Rob Woodbridge. I get the great opportunity to bring to you another amazing Canadian company doing some amazing things. We, aside from crappy winters, we do have some great talent up here in this country, and I'm going to showcase one in one moment. But before I do that, hey, listen, if you've ever thought about how you can support this site, this service, these videos, I would appreciate if you went to patreon.com forward slash untether and you can contribute. All I'm asking for is a dollar a month at a minimum. Uh, and you can actually make sure that what I'm doing here continues on. Patreon is an amazing service. It's kind of like a Kickstarter for independent content creators. What that allows you to do is basically allows guys like me to do this and do it full time. So I'm asking for you guys to go out there to patreon.com, throw a buck my way. I do four of these episodes a week or a month. I do five mobile minutes a week and a podcast called This Week in Location-Based Marketing. So I push out seven pieces of content a week. All I'm asking for is a quarter, 25 cents a week. Gives you a buck a month. If you sponsor us for $25 a month, you get one of these beautiful mugs, untether.tv mugs. So go to patreon.com forward slash untether. I'm not the only one up there. Go and take a look at some of the independent content producers and support them because we'll be bringing this kind of content to you all the time. I appreciate those who have done it and I appreciate it if you could do it as well. Patreon.com forward slash untether. All right, enough. I'm I, enough for the begging. I'm going to bring in my guest. I have Ayan Simard, who is from Fredericton, New Brunswick. He is the founder of a company called ZapTap. And we are going to be talking about today, the in-store. We've talked about this on many episodes of all of these shows, is that how important the in-store activity is. And we're talking about, you know, leveraging people's proximity to product using some of the latest technologies like Beacon and iBeacon, Low Energy Bluetooth, NFC, QR codes, whatever it might be. We got to figure out a way to trigger an action, trigger a buy, and Jan is one of those guys that can actually walk us through this. So, Jan, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story on Untether.tv. Thank you, Rob, for the invite. I look forward to it. Well, yeah, Canadian company, man, Fredericton, New Brunswick. I think you were the first person from Fredericton that I've had on the show. So, you, I, I got to send you a like I don't know a badge or something like that. Uh, oh yeah, I'd appreciate that. And uh, we, are, we actually have a pretty uh, healthy startup community here, so I'd be a uh, the first to have one such badge, so that'd be a great badge of honor. <laughs> That's right. It would be. I don't know. I don't know. You know, I, it's only on Tether.tv, small little little web channel. But Fredericton, uh, you know, for those of you who don't know the uh, the landscape, the geography of Canada, uh, it is. Uh, if you're looking at the at the at the map of Canada, it is towards the east. It is it is one province shy of the Atlantic Ocean, and but I got to tell you that it is also one of the most connected provinces on in Canada, right? I mean, you, you guys are built basically under lit fiber because the government built that up a couple a number of years ago and uh, and it started to uh, build out this healthy ecosystem. Am I wrong on any of that? No, that's true. Uh, we, uh, we even have the National Research Council, uh, the uh, uh, Institute for Information Technologies here. Uh, Fredericton is also home to two major IT companies that made it big and got it acquired. One yes. is called Radiant 6, and the other one is Q1 Labs. So Radiant 6 was bought by Salesforce a few years back, and Q1 Labs was acquired by IBM. Yeah. So we do have some nice talent here. Yes, absolutely. Well, and, and um, we're going we're gonna to talk about a little bit about uh, what ZapTap is doing um, um, in, a, in a minute or two, but I got to ask this kind of important question. Is it what... You know, for the company, what, what problem are you trying to solve? A lot of people that I talk to don't really understand the problem or don't understand the opportunity that in-store brings. Um, but I, it's emerging, obviously. But what, what is the problem you're, you're actually trying to solve? 
Well, the, uh, the original intent and the original problem we were trying to solve was the fact that uh, consumers, when they go and shop in retail stores, they usually don't have an easy access to quality product information. So uh, if you think about where the information for a given product is located, it's either on the web, it can be instruction manuals, it can be marketing brochures, what have you. It's a bunch of things that are not necessarily in the format or in the uh, that, that hasn't necessarily been put together for an in-store experience. So people show up in the store, they see a product that they haven't thought about when they were home Googling about given options, and then they realize, oh, I would like to learn more. And what they end up doing is that they end up on the phone Googling for information. So that is a problem for consumers. It's also a problem for brands. So if you happen to be the brand uh, that has a great product that is in front of a consumer, uh, and uh, the consumer looks at the product, the information that they would typically have, let's say if they go to a future shop and it's a consumer electronics product, it's going to be the price card and the two or three lines that are in the price card, and that's typically it, and sometimes some information on packaging itself. So uh, for brands, it's a major problem. They want to make sure that people when at the point of decision, which is when they're in, inside the store in front of a product, they will have a chance to give their best shot at con convincing that person that, that this is the right product for them. So how do, how, what do you guys do to help that? So uh, the, the ZapTap platform essentially uh, creates a communication bridge between consumers and brands at the point of decision, which is, as I said, when people are inside the store. So uh, if, we, if I look from a more practical perspective, if I'm a consumer and I show up in a store and I see a product that is supported by ZapTap, I scan that product and that, then I get access to uh, a phone-based uh, product experience. So uh, when I say scan, we, uh, at ZapTap we use three types of triggers. We use a low energy Bluetooth or what people refer to as beacons. Uh, we use NFC tags and we use QR codes as well. But that's only the entry point, so the focus is not there. The focus is on what happens after people have scanned uh, using well, the, these three technologies. All right, and we're going to dive into that. I'm just going to make a note that we're going to talk about after the scan, because I, I agree. Uh, we've all had some terrible experiences, and I'll, I'll lay some on you in, in a few minutes about uh, some of the experiences that I've had when I've gone through the effort of scanning something and been totally, utterly disappointed in the results, yes. because people are lazy. They don't understand that that's just, as you said, the opening, not the end. Right? Your end game is not to get them to scan it. It's to do, it's to do the following. So, uh, but I, I've got to, you think about what you guys are, what you guys are doing. How did you get into this business? Uh, how, how old is ZapTap and, 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 you know, what was the, the reason, what was the reasoning behind, you know, opening the company? Well, the, uh, the original Spark, I guess, uh, is an idea I got probably eight or nine years ago. I was a researcher in the e-learning field back then. And uh, I was trying to figure out how to link the knowledge related to a product to the product itself. And uh, that's when I realized that there was a big gap in the market. The, uh, we have to remember that at the time, the best phone on the market was probably the black and white BlackBerry. And uh, there just was no device on the market to provide a good experience. So I kind of forgot about the idea. And then I woke up uh, one day with the idea again in my head. And that was in uh, January of 2010. So what I did back then, I, I built some proof of concepts, built a business case, and uh, I got uh, some investment money. So we, we started for real in 2011. And, and uh, so did you, ra you raise money, uh, like angel money, VC, government? Yeah, well, all of the above, I guess. Uh, You're Canadian. You go everywhere, right? <laughs> yes, that's right. So we, we started with uh, the uh, angel investors community in New Brunswick. 
Uh, we got some institutional VCs as well, and of course, we leverage programs like uh, the NRCI RAP program for R&D uh, support and so on. Yeah, I mean it's a typical story for the for the Canadians. Unfortunately, you know most of Canadian most Canadian companies are um, startups are underfunded. There's a there's a lack of uh, that real Series A, and then lack of Series B even more when it comes to Canadian companies. So we're a little bit more resourceful. <laughs> and it's not necessarily a bad thing. No. So uh, having a tougher time getting the money sometimes forces you to be better. You think that like you you know there's got to be competition that you're looking at uh, in the states and elsewhere because uh, you know. It, you might not be the first guy to come up with this idea. And I think that that's the thing. And, and oftentimes with this, it's about getting getting to market as quickly as you possibly can. And sometimes I look around and I think, God, you know, we're, we're starving the companies. We're making it so hard for great technology to get to market uh, and, or to fail quickly and with great teams and then, you know, kind of pivot and change direction. And we see this a lot in Silicon Valley and other uh, major tech sector, uh, sectors in the States. But do you think that, that this is a good thing that, that it's so hard or, God, like once in a while, it'd be great just to be able to get good money into good companies so that Canadian companies can dominate for once. Well, unfortunately, some good companies die and they yeah. shouldn't. Uh, the, the other side of the, of the medal is that those who survive tend to be stronger, I think, yeah. and in some other places. Do you think that it, it I mean, I, this was totally not on the agenda and I'm, I'm hijacking this, I'm so sorry. Um, but do you think that I, I'm, I'm interested in this as well? You know, do you think that that those companies that that emerge have a different mindset? Uh, you know, that maybe their their growth is is or you know their their growth plans are, are more conservative than than say an American company with a little bit more money and, and an aggressive nature. Well, I think uh, in general people have the habit of trying to start and sell in their own backyard, right? Uh, and the backyard in Canada, in terms of market size, is smaller. Yes. So in that sense, that's probably true. Uh, I think one common mistake that we see is that uh, Canadian-based companies don't seek necessarily big market opportunities right away. They try and validate uh, internally, and sometimes the internal market is just not big enough to fuel the growth. Yeah, and I think that's the big thing is that we rely obviously on our export markets. The United States as our best, uh, most amazing trade partner, and of course, uh, as we we've emerged, I mean, we see China, we see India as as opportunities. Where are you guys selling to? Everywhere? Well, uh, we, we're open to, uh, for business everywhere, I think, but uh, we focus our efforts on the uh, U.S. market, also Canada, of course. Mm -hmm. um, we realize that there's a strong pull for our services from Europe, and eventually we hope to uh, go there in a more structured way. Asia is the same, but I'd say that uh, the, the U.K. market in London is pulling very strongly. Yeah. Well, I mean, and this uh, you're looking for... Um, structured commerce entities. I think it, it's a terrible way to describe it, but four walls, product on the aisle, on the shelves, you're looking for that kind of, is that your ideal customer? Like the guys who are actually in, in, in you know, like the Best Buys who, who are hemorrhaging or trying to learn how to leverage this technology? Yeah, we, uh, there's no clear rule, but uh, we tend to sell more to the manufacturer, so the brand itself. Oh, okay. In the sense that they like to the, uh, there's a stronger incentive for them to differentiate their product versus the other options inside the store. So uh, the value proposition is stronger there, but uh, increasingly distributors and retailers also want to provide a better experience but because guess what? People have a, a bunch of options nowadays. Uh, we, uh, I know that on your show, Rob, you talk uh, quite often about showrooming and so on. So there's a trend that are not there to disappear. Uh, retailers just need to adapt to it. Right. 
So tell me how 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 do you sell to the manufacturers? Like they're they're your target customer. How how what's a typical sales process for you? Well, we uh, we usually connect to them directly. So we uh, we talk to them by email and phone and, and web and so on. Uh, we talk often to their the marketing brands that they work with as well. Okay. And uh, I guess that the um, our sweet spot is probably brands that have uh, what is called mid mid luxury uh, products. So products where they try to differentiate not based on pricing but based on quality. So they think that our service uh, is uh, is a, a very interesting one when it comes to uh, communicating the quality value of their product, the branding value, and so on, instead of the, just the couponing and discounting. Uh, options that are plenty on the market, <laughs> and and will bankrupt companies if that's their number one. If that's what they're relying on for word of mouth and and marketing and uh, and awareness making, right? Well, yeah, and uh, those brands they often want to tell people why sometimes it's worth paying a bit more than just looking for the price. Yeah, and we live a bit in a bit of a culture uh, culture of discount. So uh, I'd say re uh, retail apps in the mobile sector. I, uh, sorry, uh, mobile apps in the retail sector. Are essentially all focused on pricing and discounts and so on, and brands, especially in the mid-luxury uh, segment, are just tired of it. Yeah. They want to explain why are they good, why they're investing that kind of money in the, the developing good quality products. You know, I, and and this this kind of leads into into our our big discussion here, which is. You know, there's got to be practices that you've seen working with some of these big brands uh, that that you've learned all of these lessons from, so that we can impart a little bit of this on folks that are listening to this, trying to figure out how they can leverage this kind of technology. We've heard a lot about beacons and low energy Bluetooth, and we've heard about iBeacon, which is Apple's implementation, and there's Beacon, which is uh, PayPal's implementation in a retail landscape. One is in your phone, the other one is obviously a plug-in device. So there's a lot of confusion around this industry that is out there. So there's that. And then there's also that, okay, now you got me to do something, right? Now, what is the thing that I should be doing? What is the next step that we should be taking here? So, you know, why don't we demystify that, that the technology that's out there? And you guys, you guys handle Beacon, and, which is low energy Bluetooth, as you said, NFC and QR codes. Um, where are we? What's the state of these things at this moment in time, which we're doing this early 2014? Yeah, I think it, <clears throat> the market in general is still early. And, uh, you were uh, you were mentioning a bit earlier about competitors. Yeah. Uh, so if we, if we look at our typical competitors, it's guys that will sell NFC tags or uh, iBeacons or BLE beacons in general, or even QR. And uh, then what happens is that the brands or the stores will build a microsite that goes with it. So there's a very static kind of experience. Where I think we really uh, we really hit uh, the mark with our approach is that. We always thought that the, the in-store trigger was the start of the, the, the beginning of the journey. So what happens after that, it's, a, it's all about building a relationship and uh, trying to learn about each other a bit more. So uh, if, I, uh, if I go very quickly over what our platform does, yep. uh, one thing we do really well is uh, we do content management, of course, but uh, I would say some competitors do some of that as well. So we're very good at allowing brands to create uh, content on the fly. Uh, updating the content anytime they want and so on. Where we really uh, put ourselves uh, apart is um, when it comes to metrics and what we do with the metrics. So we focus a lot on me measuring what's going on inside the store. So uh, which products are popular, uh, which store locations. We can uh, even uh, track in, the, uh, in a very uh, privacy uh, respectful way uh, where people are and so on. And based on that, the brands can customize the experience. 
So as an example, if a brand wants to provide a different experience for a guy who uh, regularly scans consumer electronics and then scans a TV set in a given store, they could use our system to pre-cater to that person with content that another person would not necessarily get. So it's all about uh, measuring, understanding the, the other part of the equation and try to adapt the content so that it builds value on both sides. So that is where our platform is, is different. It's about managing and monitoring that in-store experience as opposed to just providing one-time type of content. Yeah. Well, and I think that's a huge difference. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a learning system ultimately, right? So this is not static information. Yeah, it's a learning system and uh, it's, it's learning in some uh, automated way, but also uh, we sell the fact that uh, people at brands or marketing agencies will use a system, will try and test different approaches, will be able to measure what works better and what doesn't work so well, and then keep improving. So it's really, it's really about learning how to conduct business inside a store and creating a product experience. Walk through, uh, you know, just quickly, walk through a, a customer's experience using your product from the customer's side. What, what, what happens? How do they interact? What do they do? So uh, let's take the, uh, the example where someone uses an NFC tag as an example. So sure. that person would show in the store, show up in the store, see a product that they like. They will see some, uh, some special physical signage in front of that product. And that person, if they go and tap the NFC tag, that triggers the experience and that pings the Zaptap platform, if you will. So that, that person, depending on the product, may get access to technical specs. It could be videos showing how to use a product at home. Uh, it could be uh, checking out on social media where people are saying about this product. It might be a, as well promos and special offers if mm -hmm. that's what the brand wants to do. So it can be a bunch of things. And I would say uh, sky is the limit. So our platform has been built to be as flexible as possible with that sense. And I think that the most important part is that we can we can recognize and cater to that person. So we're trying to uh, make sure that our brands navigate towards building customized experiences that are highly relevant and that are going to provide value to the, con uh, to the consumer. So do they need an application when, uh, when they're using this or is this, uh, do they need the stores app in order to be able to enable this? So uh, we use, a, it depends on the trigger that we're using. Yeah. So uh, if it's QR and NFC, we don't need an app. So it pings our platform and it's a web app in that case. Mm -hmm. Uh, when it comes to Lunar G Bluetooth, because of the way the technology is built, we need uh, an app on the phone. So uh, with some clients, we're going to work with the ZapTap app. So we simply offer people to download the app uh, there. Um, someone could also access the content via NFC and then be offered to download the app so that they have the Lunar G Bluetooth experience. So we, uh, we do all of that. Um, the app is, uh, of course, has its advantages and disadvantages. The disadvantage is that you need to download it. So yeah. sometimes you lose some people over there. So we try to be as flexible as possible. We typically don't go with one type of trigger. We go with two or three inside the store. So that if you're a, a one-time user, you may scan the QR code and be fine with it. And uh, if you're a heavy user, you may want to go with a loan energy Bluetooth and have the uh, the app installed on the phone. So we can use a Zaptap app. In some cases, we can also integrate our API with a third-party app. So it could be, uh, could be a retailer's app, it could be a brand's app. So if they already have that and they want to integrate with our system to support Lonage Bluetooth, we can do that as well. You know, it's fascinating. I just, I, right there from, from the moment you talked about that is that you do two or three of these things. So QR codes, NFC, and, and, a, and a beacon, or low energy Bluetooth, is that it also kind of mirrors the kind of, 
I don't know, the loyalty, the customer loyalty chain, right? So, uh, you know, a QR code and maybe an NFC tag are not, uh, to me, don't really mean loyal customer, right? But if I'm using a brand's app, say we've gone through that effort in order to be able to integrate, then all of a sudden you know that I'm a loyal customer because I downloaded your app and you're the, you want to treat me a little differently than somebody who might be casually scanning a QR code. So, like, do you do you think about that kind of stuff? Where if listen, if if we're doing a beacon play and it's in the, the store's app, the the offers will could be different than what would be on a QR code or an NFC tap. Oh, obviously, uh, if a, if a brand wanted to to provide special offers and content to people who have the app, yeah, they could do that. That the platform is built for that. You can even uh, we can even say, well, an app uh, a promo is going to be available only to. Uh, uh, to I don't know Android users, but it will not be available for iOS. So we can do all oh, kinds of things. Yes. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Like I just had this a massive brain thought. Like I was like, "Wow, this is awesome!" And you're like, "Obviously, obviously, <laughs> that's what they're gonna do." <laughs> well, I've been at it for a while. So you <laughs> like, said this. I it was like a revelation. It's like you can do this. It's obviously, obviously, <laughs> you can do that. I'm like, oh God. Okay. <laughs> right, I'm back oh, to. Sorry. It's okay. <laughs> All right, it's all right. You you brought up the uh, like while we're talking about loyalty. I, I'm actually blushing. It's um, we're talking about loyalty here for a second. Um, how 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 do you how does this create loyalty? How do you generate loyalty within a customer who's going through this process of of either tapping, scanning, or uh, or being up in proximity to a product? What's I mean? Is there any are there any keys that you guys have learned about about creating loyalty with a customer base? Well. I think there's a golden rule. If you're, if someone inside your store takes the time to takes the extra step of scanning a, a QR and NFC or downloading an app, you have to provide value right away. So, but building loyalty starts by providing value to the user. So, if it's just a copy paste of some marketing brochure that's already available inside the store, obviously the person will be probably upset and will not scan again. So, loyalty starts by by being, being very conscious that you need to provide value every step of the way. And then uh, if you keep doing that on a regular basis, loyalty builds upon itself. And uh, as a brand, of course, if you have a consumer that uses the app on a regular basis and is in your store all the time, you probably want to know about it and you may want to cater especially to, to that person. So uh, I think it's like any kind of relationship. It's If it's a win-lose scenario, it eventually breaks. If it's a win-win, uh, you can keep going for a while, and uh, you can have a happy marriage for years. Yeah, you you hope, and, and you know, as I I believe that, that like this, the mid tier brands are are kind of flailing, and there's a high end brand, and then there's cheap, right? Um, and the mid tier guys are suffering, and 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 uh, you, you know, you've got to create that that consumer. Uh, connection i suppose is the best way and then you've got to nurture that relationship and i see so many brands that are doing this so terribly I, i've used this example a couple of times because it was just horrific because i you know I, i'm a shazam user and i believe that shazam is another way of doing this right so you got qr codes you got nfc you've got bluetooth and that's proximity but then you've also got this thing called the that audio layer that's around you or the ad layer that's on television and during the super bowl i shazammed a uh, toyota ad here in canada and uh, so I, I went through the process of madly scrambling for my phone, hitting the Shazam button, Shazamming the damn thing, and then it said yes because it gave me the indication. I'm like, this is awesome, and it took me to the Toyota Canada Twitter feed. <laughs> yeah. So you must see that kind of stuff all over the place, where it's like, that is a, a for me. 
Like I, you know, so like I had to put my wings down. I had to, you know, stand away from the couch. I had to sit up, do a little bit of exercise. That is a Herculean effort. And what they brought me to was something that pissed me off because I made that effort. So you must see that, that where, where the, the outcome is absolutely not what it should be. So are there any recommendations on, you know, when people land on that page, what, what should they be seeing? What should they be doing? Well, it, it's really uh, my opinion, but I, I believe that branding has moved from a one-way type of conversation to a two-way kind of conversation. And social media kind of got people to think this way a bit, uh, but the product itself was not necessarily part of the conversation. So where we're trying to go with the branding, and that's what our platform is about, it's about creating that back and forth branding exercise and have the product at the middle of it. So that's a huge shift in thinking. And in terms of the bad experience, I think it's, it was experiences that were focused on building content on one side and, and pushing it to as many people as you can on the other side. And uh, I think that QRs are probably the, the worst uh, example. There's nothing wrong with QR per se, but uh, I, I know that you've probably mentioned that quite a few times on, on your show. Uh, there, are, there are so many bad examples of how QR have been used. Things like uh, having a QR in the, uh, in the uh, airplane magazine, well, obviously it's not very useful. Or, never even thought of that. Or, or seeing, a, seeing an ad on a magazine where you have a QR and when you scan it, you get an exact copy of the ad that you have in the magazine. These are all things that people have seen. And uh, we tend to remember those for a long time and we tend to use that as an example of just stupid product placement. And I think uh, people, um, people are, you have to respect that people are smarter than that and you have to cater to the fact that they're smarter. Well, I think that early on, I, I mean, people thought of QR codes as just an easy way to get to a URL, right? So you had like, hey, here's my Facebook page, here's my Twitter page, here's my YouTube page, here's my Instagram page, here's my website, and then scan this and I'll take you to one of them. Right, like I think that that was the this was supposed to be the, the 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 bridge between print and digital or you know physical and digital 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 right or whatever we want to call it, but something like that. And, and and I think that that's what was wrong is that I've scanned QR codes in magazines that take me to a blank page except for a link. Click here to go to this web page, right? And it's just, but I think that we didn't know what we had in a QR code and now we may have bludgeoned it to death, I believe, because nobody scans these things anymore. Because, hey, all of a sudden there's like malicious links that pop up. You don't know the origin of those links. There's a whole bunch sure. of stuff, right? So have we killed the QR code because of our ignorance? Well, the, the, QR, the QR code has a bad branding right now because of those stupid use cases. Yeah. Uh, one thing that we try to make sure when we do signage inside a store is that we always put on the signage what are people going to get after they scan whatever uh, tag we have there. And after they scan, we make sure that that value is actually given to the, the people. Yeah. So if you do that, the, 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 what we found out was that the conversion rates are good. In some cases, uh, we have inside store situations where 25% uh, of people scan the QR code. If you look at the numbers on the market for QR in general, it's it's anywhere from 0.5%, uh, I think, to 5%. So we're doing well. It's not, and the QR is the same. It's just that the value proposition that we communicated made sense. Yeah, and you know, being in store in context uh, is is kind of like you know when you walk into a store, there's there's 
a, a certain uh, element of trust that you have, right? And so if, if the store is going to push out a QR code next to a product, for example, there's a certain element of trust that that QR code is not going to take do something nefarious, right? So, you know, it can account for some of that kind of stuff. And those numbers are ridiculous. Like, I think that if you, you know, as everybody does, if you, if you part, if you kind of relate the QR, QR code activa activation rate to a banner ad click through, everybody's like, well, my God, we're doing like 40 times a banner ad activity, but it's not the same. But people always try to jam it into that context. And I think that we should be having a, you know, strategically placed 90% click through rate or engagement rate from a QR code, right? If you're doing it right. Is that possible? Yeah, I think so. It, it's the, the the conversion rate is bad when it, the use case is bad. So if That's you fix it, way of saying it, typically people will will spend their time and do it. No matter if it's a QR and NFC or an iBeacon. Yeah. So people will just do it. I actually have a good example of it's probably the worst QR I've ever seen. Okay. I love uh, it. I was, I was driving in uh, in Montreal on the the Carey Highway. So for people who don't know Montreal, it's a very busy uh, section of highway. It many curves and so on. So you need to be really focused on your car. So you had that car company that had a big, a big ad just telling people how, how their, car, their car was safe. And you had a big, big QR code on it. So this, is, this is on a uh, billboard? Yeah, on a big billboard by, by the highway. <laughs> so the, what we're, they were saying about safety was totally ruined by that QR being there. Because anyone, anyone who had scanned that QR would have put their lives in danger. But you don't, so you anyway, don't, you don't put that there. You know, but the, the Quebec, the Quebec police put it there so they can nab you for using your phone while you're driving. Oh, that wouldn't be beyond them. That's probably right. That is exactly what it was. It wasn't even the car company. It was like, hey, listen, we're going to use your name. We'll give you a little bit of free branding. Sure. And then right <laughs> below that, there's a cop. He's like, everybody scanning those QR codes. And it's like, that's $180 fine. Thank you. <laughs> oh, I'm just joking. As long as they use that money to bring the Montreal Expos back into Montreal, I'd be a happy guy, right? Uh, so uh, whatever it takes. QR codes. Oh, that, yeah, that's going to take many tickets, I think. Well, you know, um, what about, uh, so what are some of the things, you've worked with some of the big brands, what, what are some of the things that have worked for those guys? And, and I'm really talking about the in-store experience and converting a casual user into somebody who might be a little bit more loyal or somebody who has, you, you, you know, you, you're beginning a relationship with. Yeah, so uh, one thing that we've, we've discovered talking to these big brands is that they all want to do something inside the store. They usually don't know what. So even the most sophisticated global brands you can think of, very smart people in there, uh, they want to create an in-store experience, they usually don't know what it is. The, uh, among the use cases that we find are uh, quite popular, they're going to want to focus on you know, the top five or the top ten uh, main uh, product highlights for a given product. And one of the things that they're saying is that usually the salespeople on the floor uh, they rotate every six months. It's very hard for the brand to make sure that the message you're going to get as a consumer is consistent. So they want consistency and make sure that that value proposition is delivered every time. So that is one use case. Uh, another one that we see all the time, and it goes a bit in the same direction, uh, they want to make sure that they guide the, the person to the right product. So for brands that, if, that may have, I don't know, 20 different SKUs inside a store, they want to make sure they guide you to the product that is going to make the most sense for you. And in some cases, uh, they want to guide you to the product that has a bigger, better margins. Uh, but uh, we try to make sure that they go with the, the, the first scenario. So that's another one. Uh, we also find uh, that the, uh, the brands want to create a branding experience 
that goes beyond the product itself. So as an example, if we sell to a luxury apparel kind of brand, that, that brand may decide that they want to invite all females aged 25 to 45 who uh, go in front of a given product or a given weekend and invite them to a fashion show they're doing two weeks later. So they want to extend the branding experience and the product experience beyond the store. So this it changes the nature of the store a bit if you think about it as well. So uh, stores are still currently distribution centers, so uh, temporary stockage areas for products. Eventually, they're going to uh, focus more, in my view, on the showrooming and the, the experience side of things instead of just being a place where you, where you stock products before people pick them up. Does does this combat showrooming? Like a, you know, a lot of a lot of companies, a lot of retail companies looked at this as you know instead of instead of creating open Wi-Fi areas and 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 uh, and helping customers do matching and finding products that were better for them, like which was you know what we hope. Um, you know, we found companies like basically clamping down on internet access, limiting cellular activity, you know, inside the store so that they kept you captive in there so that you couldn't find another product or a better price. So does what you guys do help kind of, uh, you know, open up showrooming in a, in a, in like in a good way and, and, uh, and help them combat that? Well, I, I would hope so. And the, <laughs> the experience of the store that you mentioned where they, they kill the uh, Wi-Fi connection or the, uh, they make sure that the walls are so thick that you will not get cell reception. Yes. It, it's a bit like Microsoft in the 90s trying to pretend that the internet didn't, didn't exist or wouldn't fly. Yeah. So uh, they will just lose customers in the long run, I think. Uh, where, uh, where providing value inside the store makes a lot of sense to fight showrooming. Showrooming is typically uh, when the store is only a place where you shop for price. So if you shop for price, you will shop online and you find that you have sometimes cheaper options online and then the store loses every time. The store has an advantage that uh, in the store doesn't have. You can touch and feel, you can talk to people around it. You can, uh, you can experience a product in a much, much richer way than, than online. Of course, you, I guess pricing wise, you still need to be competitive uh, and then maybe the value proposition for the store changes. but. In terms of uh, having an experience center, if you will, uh, that's the best place. Yeah. That's the best place where to do it. So stores should move away from just stocking shelves and trying to get the products out of the store as soon as possible to providing that communication point, that customer experience point that will make people forget about pricing. Is there a sequence? Is there a sequence for that? You, you know, is there like... Um you know, I'm in the store and I see a product that I want to buy or I'm interested in and I, and I do something. I interact with it. I scan it. I tap it. I, I, you know, I walk close to it for a for beacon for low energy Bluetooth. Is there a sequence to get my attention that you, you found work like, hey, we're here. Hey, it's 10% off. Hey, sign up for the mailing list. Hey, do this. You know, how do you, how do you gradually create that relationship with people? Well, uh, we found that, uh, well, you typically need some, need some candy, that's, that's for sure. Yes. But the candy can be, hey, guess what? The questions that you have about my product, I have the right answers to it. Right. So uh, we need that value proposition. It, it doesn't need to be a promo or discount or something of the kind. As long as you provide something that people want uh, and makes sense and you make sure that you deliver on that promise, people are going to use it. We've seen that countless times. Yeah, you know... I, I had this uh, great uh, interview a couple of years ago with a Vancouver-based uh, coffee roasting company. It was Ethical Bean Coffee. It's a roasting house in Vancouver. And 
Yeah, yeah. You, I mean, you get them now in Loblaws here up in Canada in the organic section, and, and it's it's a it's an amazing. It's a, it's a uh, basically a um, a fair trade coffee company, and they wanted to kind of uh, take away the myth of fair trade or explain what they meant by fair trade. So they put QR codes right on their packages, right? That that um, when you scanned it. Uh, it told the story of the bean, of the makeup of the bean that was in that bag. It also talked about the, you know, the, uh, you, you know, they went down to Guatemala and did some video around where the plantation was that the coffee roaster coffees was was grown on at the coffee plantation. And they talked to, you know, the owner of the coffee plantation, and they, you know, they created this immersive experience. Is that what we're talking about? Is a great, great example of this? Well, absolutely. That that's part of their value proposition. That's part of the branding. Yeah, and uh, that might justify why they're maybe a bit more expensive than some other options yeah so if i'm if i'm a consumer and fair trade is important to me that might be enough for me to go and pick up the coffee so that's where you differentiate based on quality as opposed to just pure pricing yeah you see that all the time we have a big uh, client uh in the united states and we're going to deploy with them in a few months they have a, they have a high-end line of products uh, that tend to be about twice as expensive as, the, as their next, uh, their as their uh, closest competitors, and usually their products sit side by side with the competitors inside Home Depots. So you can think of how much of a problem it is for them. If you look at the product itself, it looks almost exactly the same. So as a consumer, if you want to buy that premium product and then you see the other one half price, you start to have a moment of doubt inside the store. That's terrible. So uh, that brand makes sure that they explain to people why their product is better than the next one. And, is, and, and, and they've been able to increase their conversion rate as a result? Well, we're deploying with them in a couple of months, okay. so we'll see, but uh, I think it's going to make a lot of sense. It sounds like a follow-up episode right there. We'll see how this, how this goes, right? Sounds good. What about, um, so, you know, let's talk about this, this a little bit into the future. Um, because in-store activity, you know, there's people on one side that say that the store forever will has been changed as a result of this, and and you know the statistics. It's crazy the the adoption of mobile, and not only in-store, but but out of store and in home, and the adoption as a first screen, and the way that it's kind of turning everything on its head. Um, but so, what does this do for the store of the future? You know, I, my my vision is very clear. It's very simple, and you're going to laugh at me again and say it's obvious. Um, Maybe not. Maybe well. Right. No, but but the next the, the next big thing that's going to happen is that is unlimited inventory, right? So I'm in a store, I'm in any store, and uh, I can buy any product from within that store, and that store will benefit from me being in that you know get ultimately get credit for the purchase as a result of me being in that store. So here's an example: I walk into a Best Buy, or I walk into you know I don't know a marketplace, and I see a product that I'm, I'm interested in, and I scan the product, and I'm like, oh look, there's 14 variations of that, and I want the 13th, but it's not in store. I buy it there, proximity because. I'm in the store, store gets credit, sh product gets shipped, I'm a happy guy, I've had a great brand experience. So like I see at some point like the, the retail footprint shrinking, but the inventory being endless, and then the retailer is still in existence, but getting benefit. But all through this kind of technology, through low energy Bluetooth, through NFC, through QR codes, or whatever happens. And my, that's my utopian view in the short term. It, you know, what do you see as, as the future of this? Well, I think uh, I agree with your, your insights. Uh, I would probably bring it even, uh, even, even further. So uh, we see some experiments around stores where you cannot actually pick up a product. You can buy it, and then it gets shipped to your place later. So I think we'll see more and more of those uh, small square footage kind of places where you have very rich product experience, 
and then the product gets shipped to your place later. Where I think it's, fan it's fantastic and there's a huge potential is that uh, there's a way to change the business model. So uh, maybe the retail store will not be the place where they get compensated for selling the product, uh, for, for, for giving you the physical product. They might be compensated each time you complete a sale with a given brand. So the, uh, they then become an experience center. And if, even if you end up buying online later, later on when you get home, they may still get compensated because the experience, uh, you actually got it when you visited a physical store. Right. So they get credit for it. You get credit for it. So uh, there's obviously some technical challenges uh, as part of that. Uh, but I think it's unavoidable. We'll eventually get there. What What about, uh, you know, I, this also theory, I love it, is that uh, like you're working with some of the brands. So, you, you know, you've got the, the roof, which is houses the product. But more and more, we're seeing uh, consumers create direct relationships with the brands. And so, listen, I am a an Apple I, I, well, it's a bad example because they have their own stores. But uh, say I'm a GE guy. I like my GE, uh, you know, oven. I like my GE washer and dryer. I like my GE, uh, you know, um, lawnmower, whatever it might be. Now I have a brand affinity to that. So I don't care about Home Depot anymore. I care about the GE brand, right? So now all of a sudden, are you enabling that, that consumer to brand relationship, which you are? And what does that do to that retailer who's like kind of like, hey, well, well, what about me over? Hey, I got the shelf, right? You are facilitating that relationship. So how does that how does that play out? Uh, great questions. Uh, I think there's a lot of unknown on how it's going to play out for all those different components. Uh, but I think where what your question is raising as another question is, what's the uh, what's the central point of an understanding between a brand and the consumer? It used to be the store all the time. Yes. Now we have a multi-channel approach, and uh, with data being generated and all these different uh, points. So there's a there's a challenge to integrate a customer's view into something that's going to make sense all the time. It's going to be uh, standardized uh, from one channel from from one channel to the next. But then the value proposition of each of the components inside that ecosystem changes. And that's why I was mentioning earlier about the fact that the nature of the retail store is changing. Um, they are in the uh, they are probably on a path to disruption unless they find a better value proposition. And I think. In my view, it should be around the product experience. Yeah, uh, yeah, I, I agree with that. Uh, Doug Stevens, who is known as the retail prophet, talks about this as well. Is that you really have to create? He's a Toronto-based uh, guy, very, very, very smart guy. Um, you have to create that retail engagement at, at the place of business, right? So it is the experience when they walk in the door, and and uh, it's not about uh, you know just having a big open warehouse full of stuff. It is about engaging, uh, you know, displays of the product or experience inside of the retail store. I, I, I'm I'm fascinated by this whole, you know, dissolution of the store uh, because of the one-to-one -one relationship with the brand. Because I, I see a point where I've gone into, say, a Home Depot. We mentioned it a couple of times here. I bought a barbecue, a good, expensive barbecue. And then, a, you know, I take it home and I'm ecstatic. I put it all together and then I, I you know, a year later, a, a, you know, a part breaks. Right? So I go back into the place where I bought it and they're like, oh, no, you have to contact the manufacturer for that. And, and so I, I end up, they inadvertently... Now I've got a direct path to the manufacturer just simply because I needed a product. And then, of course, the next time I'm going to buy a barbecue, well, I'm just going to buy it from the manufacturer, right? Because I'm doing it anyways. I've got that relationship. And now the manufacturer is talking directly to me and Home Depot is sitting like, well, hey, Woodbridge, why aren't you buying from us anymore? Right? And I, they do it to themselves. It, it's kind of frustrating. It must be frustrating. But that's what happens when you, you have to stock a billion products 
to, to drive people into the store to, to hit your hit your numbers. And I, I might be right way off on that, but these are my experiences. Well, it, it not only is true, but uh, the, the fact that each of those components have a different role to play in the, uh, the consumer journey, uh, it creates huge data integration problems. So the only way you can have a full picture of the consumer is to have some kind of integration between all, all, all the, these components. And in theory, it works well, but in practice, you have something called privacy that you need to take care of. So uh, it's, it's very challenging to do it in the uh, privacy-aware way that is going to provide value for all the players in the ecosystem, including the consumer. So uh, there's tremendous potential for innovation there. Uh, hope, I'm hoping that my company is going to play a small role in that, but there's, there's tons of opportunities for data integration and creating insights that will make sense for the consumer as well. All right, so why aren't companies doing this? Like, oh, so there's got to be a reason that that people are not engaged. Like, you know, what is the 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 headspace? What's the knowledge level? Why should they be doing this? Why aren't they doing this? Give me a, a summary of what's going on in the industry, the customers you're talking to. Uh, well, I think it's uh, essentially a, a conflict of, of business uh, business models. It's probably the uh, the old innovators' dilemma, in the sense that it's very hard to disrupt your own business model when it's when it's paying for uh, for, uh, for the electricity of your place, right? So uh, that's probably why those things take time to happen. Uh, it's much more easier to try and protect your data than try and integrate with third-party sources of data and create value for them as much as, as you do for you. So that's my own explanation, but it's going to happen anyway. It's, uh, there will just be more casualties along the way probably. Do you think that they're afraid and, and they jump into things too quickly? Or do you think that they, I mean, what's their motivator to get involved right now? Because if they don't understand, yet they're, they're worried about disrupting their own business, is it fear that, that keeps them from it? Well, it tends to start with greed. Uh, but then greed, uh, when they realize how complicated it is, then they don't move. And then fear comes in because they think, oh, if I'm not doing it, I'm going to uh, get in trouble. And then they rush into it and do, do it badly. So I think that's one of the reasons why the buzzwords sell so well. Uh, like in retail, when these, these days, big data is a big one. So you mentioned big data and people just say, well, we got to do it. They have no clue what's going to be the use case or the, uh, the end result. But uh, if you want to buy a big data software these days, it's, yeah, it's a pretty hot topic. Uh, and then people realize that, oh, I, I never thought about what I would be doing with it. And that's another problem. But uh, we, we've seen that all the time. It's not the first time in history it happens. It's going to happen again. Well, and it's going to keep repeating itself as we go through these innovation, uh, you know, spurts and disruption spurts. Right. Yeah. And if you've looked at any of the statistics in, in the mobile space about how we use these devices and where we use these devices and how we use them in store and the impact of uh, mobile on the entire shopping cycle. And it used to be a pretty simple process, but now it's very complicated because we get, we get interrupted with these devices wherever we are. Um, you know, if I'm a retailer, this is a big, big, big hill to climb, and you have to be open to some new suggestions, or else you're going to wake up one day locked out of your own store, and that's going to be a terrible thing. Uh, and we're starting to see that in the retail space. Oh, Jan, I, I, do you have something to add to that? No, I, I agree with you. Without a doubt, we'll see uh, many experiments. Uh, probably uh, we'll see many fail, and uh, probably we'll also see a few winners, and hopefully we'll be able to learn from them. Uh, well, I've learned a ton here. Jan, thank you so much for doing this. Where should we send people? Where should we send people? Uh, 
to, uh, to our website, obviously, zaptap.com. They can uh, contact with us, uh, contact us uh, quickly. Uh, we're, we like to think that we're uh, not only uh, providers of uh, software and retail, but I think we have a very smart group of people that can help solve real uh, retail problems. So, uh, of course, I'll be happy to, uh, to uh, work with anyone. Uh, email address as well, it's fine. Amazing. So go to zaptap.com. We've been speaking with uh, Jan Simard, who is the uh, founder of a company of ZapTap, uh, located in Fredericton, New Brunswick, Canada. Yes. And if you found value, please reach out uh, to Jan and let him know what you thought of this episode. And uh, I'd appreciate it a little bit as well. Reach out to me, Robert on Tether.tv. And of course, you can always show your love and your support by going to patreon.com forward slash untether and flipping me a buck a month. That is the best way that you can show your love. Really. I appreciate that very much. Jan, thank you for doing this. I appreciate your time. Thanks, Rob. That was lots of fun. That was a blast. And you guys who are listening, watching, wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thank you for tuning in for another episode of Untethered.tv. We'll be back next week. Mm -hmm.